Today's program was brought to you by Eating Tools, unique handmade eating and cooking tools. For more information, visit eatingtools.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at Heritage Radio Network. Welcome to season two of Meant to Be Eaten. I'm your host, Andrea Ween, and joining me today in the studio is Chef Rob Newton. Rob's mini empire includes the Vietnamese-inspired spot Nightingale 9, Southern-style Wilma Jean, the Cafe Smith Canteen, locally sourced Yellow Magnolia Cafe, and the restaurant Black Walnut, which is located inside the Hilton in downtown Brooklyn. Rob also has another exciting project up his sleeve that I'm hoping we can talk about today, and I'm so thrilled to have him on the show. Chef, welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. I'm glad we saw each other back in December and made it happen. Thank you. Likewise, likewise. So to kick us off, I want to know how a boy from Arkansas (laughs) came to open a flurry of restaurants in New York City. Well, that's a mouthful. Um, I mean, I went to culinary school. I grew up, you know, just in pretty, you know, I hate to use the word foodie, but a family was food-centric, I would say, and we had a garden, and, you know, I learned how to hunt at a young age and fish and all that, and grew up in, like I said, very food-centric, and, you know, fast forward until um, my early 20s, I just sort of in some fit of, <laughs> I don't know what brought me to this point, but I just sat down and made a list of things that I enjoyed and then a list of ways I could make a living doing those things I enjoyed. And I came up on the idea of being a chef and I didn't, this was... What else was on that list? Like what are, what are the pro and con kind of no, sides man, that's look a good like? question. Um, I think architect was in there. Um, things involving cars, which I really enjoy cars. I, you know, the South is very car culture centric and so is my father. Um, so long story short, I just decided to pursue and and look into culinary school, which I didn't even know was a thing. Like, you know, we talked about talking about stereotypes and maybe we'll get into that, but I didn't really know that you could be a chef. Like I had the stereotype in my brain of generally a man, um, and generally overweight, smoking a cigarette, maybe drinking brandy at 12 in the afternoon, like the stereotype, you know? And a friend of mine, I was in a fraternity in college because that's what you do in the South. And <laughs> one of my buddies, uh, his mother knew somebody from, that went to culinary school. And I learned about it. And I went to culinary school. I packed up. I dropped out of college. What were you in college for at the time? Um, I was studying international business and German um, because I studied German. I was a German exchange student in high school. Okay. And I was in the military. And I, I lived in Germany for two years. So I have a pretty good grasp of the language. And I wanted... My thought process was when I got out of the Army, I was going to go to college and do something that could um, provide me an opportunity to live internationally and travel. And um, I thought the best way at the time to do that was to get a degree in that and minor in a foreign language that could possibly enable me to live in Europe at least part-time. That was the goal. And I just really wasn't enjoying any of that. I wasn't... I, I, I think I'm fairly smart, but I really wasn't doing very well in school because I wasn't interested. 
Yeah. So I dropped out, went to culinary school, and it was the best thing that I did. And that just sort of opened up all this other stuff. I went to Vermont, New England culinary. And it was great. What did your family say when you were like, I'm leaving college, I'm going <clears> to <throat> go to culinary school? My dad wasn't into it. Um, he came around later. Uh, he got to see my first restaurant before he passed away, and so that was cool. Um, I think they were just scared. Like, I'm from a really small town in the middle of northern Arkansas. Literally, I'm from the middle of nowhere. And something like that's pretty big. It is. Looking back, it's kind of insane that I just packed up all my shit and left, you know? Yeah, I think I'm out. also from a pretty small town in Ohio, yeah. and kind of the same thing. And people are always like, "How did you do it?" I'm like, "I don't, I don't know. I just did it. Right? Yeah. You just did yeah. it because you wanted something more." Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that came. I mean, I don't know. I just, you know, I packed up and left to join the army like a week after I graduated high school. And now, was on. that decision something that you consciously did, or was it like the recruiter came and you're like, "I don't know what else to do"? So I'm no, do I that. consciously did it for money for school because okay. I. I don't come from a wealthy family, and I knew that it was going to be hard. So, you know, this was like the late 80s, and they were offering me like 50 grand after I got out to go towards school. I was like, that sounds good. I'll do that. Three what did years you, what did you think life. of Army life? It wasn't for me. You know, I didn't, it, it just really wasn't for me. Um, but looking back, like I come from a very organized family, and then I went from the organized family into a very organized culture of being the military. And it, kind of makes sense that I would become a chef because there's very militants, not the right word, very organized sort of culture in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. You know, cooking is like on the line and there's like a brigade and system. And your mise en place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, they're a little bit analogous. So it kind of made sense. Um, I think I appreciate it now. You know, I sort of, when I got out, I mean, cause I got caught up in the, the first Gulf war, which was like something that I certainly didn't sign up for. Um, so I just probably spent a decade after that just sort of acting like it never happened and just trying to move on from it. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, it's all just part of, like, your path of life, you know? Absolutely. Well, I was going to save this question for <coughs> later, but since we're kind of talking about this evolution, how has the food that you've eaten in your life evolved as you've gotten older and carved out a career in this industry? Like, what were you eating? You said you had a foodie family mm-hmm. when you were five. Maybe we'll go, like, 19, because I'm curious about army life food. Sure. Like, you know, late 20s, 30s, and now. Um, I think I've been pretty lucky. I think I've always kind of... I think it goes back to like, growing up and being in a food-centric family. My father, in particular, had a really good palate and was really serious about, not like Michelin star, let's go to France for the summer and, and do that. Like, totally not that. But he had a good understanding of how to use salt. He had a very good understanding of buying really good quality meat or cooking fish as soon as we caught it. Um, you know, we had forage for mushrooms. We'd go out and pick wild onions. Um, we'd pick... You know, my mom would make grape jelly every fall. We'd go pick wild grapes. Like, those aren't things that normal kids do. Um, hopefully, more people are doing it now because it's a little bit more common and America's a little bit more food-centric than maybe they were in the 80s. But, like, growing up in that environment, um, I just I just feel like I was fortunate to experience that. And I think it's sort of sort of like laid out a path that I'm on and then kind of helped uh, facilitate it. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting when you can look back, you know, and so many people talk about inspiration. I want to definitely talk to you about your inspiration. Of course, yeah. You know, in the restaurants and in the different projects that you have going on. But 
All right, so that's when you're at home. Mm-hmm. Then you get out into the real world without your family cooking for you. Like, what does the food look like then? I think some of my first memories of two, they're both in Germany, because that's really the first time. It's like the first time I left and was on my own to fend for myself to eat. Um, Most people are, like, making ramen in, in their microwaves. Yeah. <laughs> so... I don't know. I, you know, the group of guys that I would hang out with living in Germany, I lived right outside of Frankfurt. It was pretty commonplace to like rally some people together to go to like a nice restaurant as opposed to like, you could always eat on the base for free because that's part of the thing. But like, you know, on certain weekends when I knew that we were going to have the weekend off, um, more often than not, it would be something food focused. And there's a lot of, uh, at least at that time, and I'm sure it's still the case now, um, a lot of Turkish um, immigrants in, in Germany. Mm-hmm. So there's always <clears throat> some kind of donor kebab, um, Middle Eastern pita sandwich situation to be found or Italian restaurants. The first time I'd ever had uh, tortellini was in Germany for whatever Random, reason. Yeah, yeah whatever, whatever, however that worked out. Um, so yeah, I think I, I think I was just always kind of adventurous. And I think my curiosity... And the ability to be adventurous is because I had good food growing up. You know, I knew what it was to, like, go, uh, you know, much to my chagrin at, at a certain age. Like, my father and my, my, my mom and dad both actually would, you know, make me participate in the family garden. And I would have, like, my own little patch of carrots and my own little patch of strawberries. And I kind of hated it because it's I hate hot. It. I it's kind of hot in Arkansas. This is totally it's like, what I was going to say. When totally we, hated right it. Right before we came on air, we're talking about not being able to keep this plant alive. And my yeah. mom, I grew up in in right outside of Cleveland, and uh, my mom had a garden in the backyard. But she, unlike your family, didn't like food <laughs> at all. Like she, That's interesting. Yeah, she grew up in communist Romania and moved to the States I want to get into that 14. in a minute. I've heard that. I want to talk yeah, about that. And, uh, and she ate to live. Like, you know, she didn't really... It was substance. It was, yeah, exactly. Or sustenance. Sustenance. Yeah. So she ha- we had this garden, and pretty sure she, like, sprayed it with fertilizer all the time. I mean, it wasn't, like, <laughs> organic. You know, it was terrible totally. for us, probably. But she always used to make me go out and, like, pick the weeds and, you know, grab the stuff for dinner or whatever and, and tend the garden, and I just hated it. And sure. now I think I just have this aversion to gardening, which is so sad because as someone who loves food, I would love to be able to love that aspect of it, but it's just not. But y- you might hate it, but <clears throat> the experience of going out and, and picking or harvesting something that's never going to see a refrigerator or not be shipped across the country and eating that vegetable at the temperature of the earth. Absolutely. It's something everyone should be able to experience. That's special. I just don't want to be the one to do it. Like, <laughs> I, like if I had a neighbor that was like, hey, you want to share this garden? And like, I'll do, you know, like the yeah. tilling of it. I mean, now I would be, I probably would like it a little bit more. But yeah. there's still, it's ingrained in there. Yeah. You're still fighting it. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I don't want to take over the show, but I, I have mild fascination with gypsies, which I'm not saying that you're a gypsy, but have yeah. you read the book um, Bury Me Standing? No. It's really interesting. You should check it out. It's about Roma culture. All right, I'm writing it down. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I still have a lot of family uh, over in Romania. And actually, when I was in high school, I petitioned the high school to let my cousin, who was a year older than me, come and be a foreign exchange student at awesome. our high school. And I was so excited. I was going to learn Romanian. My mom like isn't really... She never wants to go back, number one. Right. She didn't 
really speak to us in Romanian. We didn't want it, you know, we didn't want her to speak to us when we were kids. But when I was in <laughs> high school, uh, I really was like, okay, I'm going to learn Romanian. My cousin came. Sure. And then we just didn't get along. Oh, boy. It was like, this is uh, not a good... Such different cultures, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was. So it was kind of disappointing. But I do have a lot of family over there still. And they all... The gypsies are bad news. <laughs> That's what I... Yeah, the, the book is really... It's more of a... Um, I think the woman who wrote the book was like an American woman, I think. And she was... It was her PhD thesis or something like that. And she was she spent a lot of time in Albania as well. Okay. I think they're neighbors. Isn't that right? Yeah. Anyway... I don't want to derail the show, but no, no, check no. it out. It's really cool. I will. I will. Yeah, it's funny. My parents always said that they kind of saw that spirit in me a little bit. Like, uh-huh. they said, when you were a kid, if we had to pick something you were going to do, it would be like selling beads on the Venice boardwalk. I was like, that's <laughs> great. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks a lot. All right. Well, let's bring it back to... Yeah, enough of the gypsies. ...the uh, inspiration for... We've talked a little bit. You went to Germany, the family, but where did the Asian part come in? Where's Vietnamese? <clears throat> um... Well, I guess it's like 20 years in the making because even though we had, you know, a garden and carrots and strawberries and I, I ne- like fresh herbs weren't really a part of my mom's pantry, you know, and only until recently, and I'm from a small town called Mountain Home, Arkansas, and only recently can you go to like, there's a grocery store called Harp, so there's like Walmart super centers. Fresh herbs weren't really a thing and probably until like the last five or ten years it just like I remember specifically going and and wanting some basil and we had to buy a plant because we couldn't find fresh basil it's like it's like that which is weird I think it's similar in Ohio I didn't really we didn't have fresh herbs that wasn't something that is weird maybe had like a rosemary plant outside that was it yeah so I'm, I'm saying that because I don't think I'd ever had like fresh basil until I went to culinary school and I started trying these different things, which is what you're supposed to do in culinary school. And then I was living in Vermont, going to culinary school, and would go out and try these different ethnic foods. And I was just completely fascinated. It kind of blew my head off because it was very unlike anything that I'd eaten growing up. Um, so that was like my first foray into Southeast Asian food, and I fell in love with it. And then subsequently, when I moved to New York in 97, <clears throat> I don't. I don't want to say that I was into this fusion idea because that's a very loaded word, and most chefs don't even want to like talk about it now. And I think that's fine, and I, I tend to agree with that. But I really wanted to see what this Cambodian chef Sotakun was doing at Le Cirque when they relaunched in two thousand, um, or no, they relaunched in ninety seven. They called it Le Cirque two thousand because the millennium was coming. And so I was lucky enough to get a job there. That's my first job in New York City, and that's when like Le Cirque. It doesn't even it's not even open anymore, but it really meant something in the nineties. It was very it had had like a twenty year run and it was very very serious restaurant and you know, so I was working with these other cooks who um were kind of there for some of the same reasons to see what this like French trained Cambodian chef was gonna do. And none of the things that I really was hoping to see really came to fruition because he was so French. He like grew up in France basically because he left um under the Khmer Rouge and all that kind of stuff. Um, so he, he mostly ate bacon all the time. Oh, ultimate backfire. Yeah. So, but, you know, the good side of that is, you know, I worked with a bunch of other cooks who had been in New York City longer than I, and they turned me on to Chinatown. And to try to end the story, I, I got turned on to Vietnamese food. 
and I went to a restaurant which is on Doyer Street. It used to be right next door to where Nam Wah Tea Parlor is yep. now and mm-hmm. has been for almost 100 years. It was a restaurant called Vietnam, and you'd go downstairs. I think there's like a taco place or something there now. And that's my first time having Vietnamese food and having soups uh, with fish and tamarind broth that have like pineapple and tomatoes in it. It just completely blew my mind. I didn't know that people could eat like that, and, like soft-shell crabs and um, just a proliferation of herbs, which I was just never exposed to and i don't really like crazy spicy food so thai i know that all thai food's not spicy i get that but it's a very powerful cuisine and i just liked the nuance and the subtleties of vietnamese food and i think the vietnamese are masters at presenting something that is so seemingly simple yet so complex and flavorful at the same time and that's really hard to do yeah, I think the thing that shocked me and was amazing about Vietnam when I went about the food is like they have very specific eating times and there's one person and that person does one thing. 100%. So it's uh-huh. like if you don't get to the soup lady between 6 a.m. and 8 a.m., like she's done, she's, she's done. done because yeah. everything's fresh. She got it. She picked it yeah. out from the backyard and that's it. And it was just such an explosion of flavor in such simple preparation, yep. but just done meticulously. Yep. I mean, you nailed it. That's exactly the way it is. And <clears throat> there's some solace in knowing that all that meat that's just out in the 95-degree Saigon heat, that it's all going to be bought and cooked and consumed that day because otherwise you would just get sick looking at it. Right. <laughs> because it's like, why is that pork out with flies all around and it's 90 degrees, but it's eventually going to be sold and it's going to be cooked that day and then move on. So how would you make the jump from <clears throat> I really love this food to I'm going to open a restaurant? that is inspired by this food? Well, it's like almost 15 years later, you know? Um, yeah, so I had my career, and well, I mean, I still have my career, but I, I did I did my cooking, and I was a private chef for a long time. And then I opened my first restaurant, Seersucker, um, which is where Nightingale 9 is now, and then the coffee shop. And then my business partner, Carrie, uh, who has a show here in a magazine called Cherry Bomb, um, we both love Vietnamese food, and I just didn't feel like at the time there's a lot of good Vietnamese food here. Um, this was like 2013, I think. Um, and I had always loved it. You know, I didn't, you know, I didn't pull it out of a hat and be like, okay, now I'm going to do Vietnamese food. That's absolutely not <laughs> the way it was, and I absolutely have a love and a reverence for that cuisine and I just wanted to explore it and understand it more and spend time in the country and travel the country and um, cook with little old ladies and, and do that and so that's what I did. Yeah, I read an article from Bon Appetit, I think it was like 2012, <clears throat> so it must have been before Nightingale opened and you just went around and ate for a month in Vietnam and I want in on that next trip Yeah, <laughs> whenever yeah. you go, yeah. signing up, 100%. signing myself up. But I thought it was really interesting that you said, and I wish that you would do this at the restaurant, that you had to work as a Westerner to get certain things that they would didn't want to serve you. So like blood cubes, for example. Oh my God. And I had that exact same experience. That happens here. <laughs> yeah. I had that exact same experience where it was like, yeah. oh no, trust me. And they just think you won't like it, but 100%. it's like the best part. Oh Yeah. I just want, you know, I <clears throat> I wanted the authentic experience. I wanted to eat like a local would do, you know, and I would hire a fixer for every town so that, because the language barrier is intense and not only is this person he or she like a translator, but they're also 
connected to the local community. Um, it's good to put money into the local community because you pay these people. Um, but they also can take you to places that you wouldn't find on your own. You wouldn't find on migration alty yeah. or like whatever. Exactly. You know what I mean? You, just, you can, they'll turn you on to something real. Yeah. I went and my friend Jody Ettenberg runs a site called Legal Nomads. She's been nomadic for the last 10 years. Sweet. And so she spent most no keys. of her time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What she spent the, the longest I think she's been anywhere is Oaxaca, Mexico. She was studying mole for the last year or so. But she was in Vietnam and had been there for some time and basically was running food tours of the local street food and all the way out in far districts that you would never know to go to. So we had a similar experience where, similar to a fixer, where she cleared her schedule for the week and then just took us to all these places. And many of them wouldn't even serve her for the first like dozen times that she showed up and she just kept going back. That's absolutely right. And so the food that we had, you know, when, then when we were off on our own in other places, it wasn't nearly as... Did you go to Dalat? We did not. We went oh to Hoi An and Saigon. We're the only two on that trip. Did you have Kao Lao in Hoi An? Yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah. Love that dish. Yeah, yeah. All right. We are going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we will talk to Chef Rob about more fun stuff. Stuff. <laughs> Inspired by the finely crafted tools built at the hands of friends in and around custom knife making and with a love of all things food, Abe Shaw began forging a collection of culinary tools unlike any other. Collecting and working with custom and handmade knives for over a decade, Abe has developed a deep respect and admiration for the artists, metalsmiths, woodworkers, and craftspeople behind the endless interpretations of these ancient tools that feed us, the most intimate tools in our lives. They needed a showcase, and Eating Tools was born. The curated collection of unique and extraordinary handmade culinary utensils you'll find here, along with a hand-picked selection of top-quality production-made pieces, represents a catalog of products never before assembled in one place. Many of these products can only be found at Eating Tools. Food, cooking, craftsmanship, and art are their ingredients. There's no substitute for having the right tool for the job, and Eating Tools promises to bring you just that. They think you'll agree that the food-loving visionaries behind each of their products has an eye for the tools we use every day. For more information, visit eatingtools.com. We're in the studio today with Chef Rob Newton. I'm Andrea Ween, and you are listening to the first episode of the new season, season two, Meant to be Eaten. So I want to talk a little bit about the stereotypes. We talked about it on email a bit. Totally. So I would love to, for you to riff on this, but what are the stereotypes and expectations of you having a Vietnamese restaurant when people walk in? Like, what is the, what is that? Is it harder for you to create that experience of what they expect or what they what they hope to get? That's a tough one, man. Um, I think it's I think it depends on whom you're speaking about. I think I think the first inclination is like, why is this tall white guy making Vietnamese food? That's what some people yeah. think, and then others are like. They might be like I, mean, I don't I can't speak to what people think, but there also might be a sentiment of like, who the hell does he think he is doing my people's cuisine? And I, I guess I can get that. I guess I can understand it, but I think that's sort of an uninformed opinion because you have to understand what my motivations are. My motivations are not appropriation. My motivations are not to keep your country down. You know, my my motivations are. You know, I want to explore the cuisine of this country, which I've spent a good amount of time in and traveled pretty extensively. <clears throat> so my motivations are just to explore it. And 
you know, when Nine Girl Nine began, it was very like street food focused and very um, probably more doing the classics, mm -hmm. so to speak. And I think, like my sous chef at the time, <clears throat> um, who's gone on to do other stuff, and he's a great guy. His name's Champ Jones. Um, you know, like I sent him to Vietnam and to some of the places I like and meet some of the people that I met. Um, so he spent a couple of weeks there. I've made multiple trips over there. You know, the motivation is to just ex explore and honor a cuisine that's not, I'm not a part of by birth, but I'm from a culinary appreciation standpoint. It's way up there. <laughs> if, you know, I think now I have a little bit more of a macro sense about a certain part of Asia that I'm really into culinarily, which we can get into if you want to. Um, but in the beginning, like I was saying, it was more about doing specific dishes like in there in, in its entire like Bansio and um, you know we do Bancun which not many people do from scratch in America like anywhere um, I had this like custom steamer made so that we could do that and um, <clears throat> I think part of that process was also just me and my cooks teaching ourselves about Vietnamese food and learning about this cuisine and learning about the motivations and learning how different the food is in Hanoi versus Saigon. Like, if you've never been to Vietnam, it's really different. I mean, yeah, they both have soups, and yeah, it's a lot of pork, and, you know. I mean, you could say the same thing about the U.S., right? That's I mean, exactly different food in the south of, and the north. That's kind of what I'm into. And um, so I just wanted to learn about that and honor that, and that's kind of what my motivations were. And now it's sort of morphed into, I think it's sort of a second phase of my career where I'm, I'm – seeing how the impacts of studying Vietnamese food on a pretty deep level have impacted my career and having Southern restaurants and my Southerness and how that has impacted me and coming to this sort of place where it's just sort of helping to, uh, I'm finding ways to define what like my food is at this stage in my career. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that was actually kind of one of the questions I had. I've mentioned about using a lot of different cultural ingredients at your restaurants and what the process of choosing how to construct a dish looks like when those parameters are seemingly so wide. But maybe you have a different definition of the parameters of what can and can't be used. <clears throat> yeah, a lot of my staff is very would be very curious for me to answer, <laughs> <laughs> answer that because it would help give them some guidance. Um, I think for me now, it's more about, you know, I'm working on a book that deals with this kind of stuff. And to me, I draw inspiration from the South because that's where I'm from. But one thing, you know, a curious thing that happened on my way to learning about Vietnamese food um, was, and it's kind of set me on the path that I'm on now, is when I went to Vietnam for the first time, I was pleasantly shocked and surprised and amazed to see how much commonality I drew between Southern food and Vietnamese food. And on the surface, that sounds like an insane thing to say. But when you think about where they are geographically and the coastline, like most of the South has a coast and the proliferation of quail eating and frog eating and rice consumption, um, shrimp, catfish, greens, pickles, um, I mean, these are things like which cuisine am I describing you know am I talking about Vietnamese food or am I talking about southern food I'm talking about both right. and that really stuck with me if you like take lemongrass and like fish sauce off the top and mm -hmm. start looking at all these other things 
and not all Vietnamese food has lemongrass and fish sauce in it. Most fish sauce, yes, lemongrass, no. Um, there really are a lot of commonalities, and that seems kind of insane. But once you spend time there and look at it through that lens, um, it just kind of set me on a whole other path. And then coming back and spending a lot of time in the South and driving around the South because it's something I really like to do. I find driving very, very relaxing. I, I feel like it relaxes like the creative part of my brain. Um, I'm just really inspired by the immigrant communities that are throughout the South. You know, some of the best Vietnamese food I've had in America is um, in New Orleans. It's Any like restaurants really, that you'd call out? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a bakery on Chef Mentor Highway, which I think is east of like New Orleans proper. It's Dong Fong Bakery. And they they have like a little banh mi place in there, and they they bake their own bread, obviously, but they also have uh, pata show, which is like the Vietnamese. It's almost like a little meat pie, which I'm obsessed with little meat pies of, from all different parts of the world. They do an exceptional job there with stuff like that. Um, and then there's a restaurant on that same road that I cannot think the name of it right now. Uh, it's really, really, really good. Really, really good. It's a really good bon rue there, which makes mm, sense I in New Orleans. Bon yeah, really good, you know, crab and shrimp. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, that's just a very long-winded way of saying, you know, the different immigrant communities that are populating the South um, are very inspiring to me. You know, there's a Kurdish population in Nashville that's the biggest in the country, and it's the biggest Kurdish population outside of northern Iraq. That's really inspiring to me, you know. There's a Laotian community in western North Carolina that came here after the war, um, and they, have their, they grow their own sticky rice there, and <clears throat> just cool stuff like that, and... To me, that's kind of, it's going to be part of the story and the narrative of what Southern food is going to look like in the future, in my opinion, because, you know, I grew up eating tacos, but it was from Taco Bell. Like little <laughs> kids, little kids that are growing up now are going to know what a banh mi is, and it's just going to be part of their canon. Right. And that's, there's a fine line between a banh mi and a po' boy. You know, they're called Vietnamese po' boys in, in New Orleans. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I was just down there. I yeah. did see that. It's very cool. Yeah. And Biloxi, too. So when you think over maybe the last year, what is one of the more significant epiphanies? Like, you know, we're kind of mentioning these things that it tied together. Like, what's something that you're like, wow, that really, it really came together for me career-wise? Career-wise? Or we could go personal. Either one. <laughs> They can get into therapy session here if you want. <laughs> um, sure. Let's get another Manhattan. Um, I think it's more than like a year ago, but sort of just taking the training wheels off of being so regimented and, for lack of a better word, like classic Vietnamese cuisine and um, starting to dabble in the foods from southern China, this province called Yunnan that I'm obsessed with that I think might be one of the most special places on the planet. Um, the cuisine from there is, is amazing, and it's sort of allowing some of that stuff to come into, you know, what I want to make on a day-to-day basis, whether it's at the restaurant or not. And I think that's very confusing to our guests, you know, and I understand that, and I try not to take things off the menu that I know that our guests love because at the end of the day, that's what makes your restaurant run. Um, but, you know... 
I have a scallion pancake on the menu because I'm obsessed with scallion pancakes and scallion pancakes turned into sandwiches, which I think are called Xiaobing uh, in China. Um, I have a scallion pancake sandwich at Wilma Jean, my fried chicken place. For lack of a better word, it's fried chicken place. It's more like Southern <laughs> Comfort Place. But it's just like fried chicken chopped up with cucumbers and lettuce inside like a griddled scallion pancake. I mean, that's awesome. Where, what part of the world does that live in? I don't know and I don't care. It's really good. Yeah. Like who cares? You know? And that's kind of how I feel about this whole, you know, I don't, you know, you and I talked about like what we want to talk about and not get into some heavy political thing, but I think you can cook whatever you want as long as you do it with respect and have some historical origin for it and have some reason to do it. Um, culinarily speaking, I, I think we should all be able to cook whatever we want as long as we respect it. And like, if I wanted to <laughs> do some kind of appropriation, I would I would have a t-shirt company, you know, and have my t-shirts made in Cambodia, and uh, that's going to do more harm than me making pho. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I guess in that same vein, I mean, the show we're starting to think through like this season, quite literally meant to be eaten. So things that are mm-hmm. meant to be eaten at like rituals or cultural events or on certain days of the year. So. That- when you think about the foods at your restaurants, can you think of anything or have, have you had these conversations about them being symbolic of a moment in time or a special occasion rather than just like, we like these things together, let's, let's cook them up? I think the first thing that comes to mind is probably New Year's Day and we do Hoppin' John and Collard Greens together as a special because throughout the South and other parts of America probably, people that have some sort of connection to the South eat those 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 items for good luck. Um, it's so funny. We have in Cleveland. It's uh, pork and sauerkraut is like a big one. Oh wow! Yeah, Eastern and European I thought that thing. was every. I thought that was everywhere. And then it's actually like just in the last couple of years. I'm like, wait, everyone doesn't eat pork and sauerkraut right. across the whole country? Like what? I like that every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the first one that comes to mind. Um, you know, one thing that, that that didn't work, and I don't know if it's going to work any, if, I think other people have tried it in New York, is pho for breakfast. Like, I did breakfast at Nightingale 9, and um, I just, it's like, Americans just can't get their head around, like, savory soup for breakfast, and I find I it so... It. Oh, it's so good. I find it so soulful and, um, like, restorative, which is what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't give breakfast away. I could eat <laughs> Vietnamese so soup for every meal. Yeah. Like for every, I mean, and I did. It's when hydrating I like, and it's, it's delicious. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. So that's going back to your original question about eating things at certain times or for certain purposes. Like that's one that I regret that I couldn't make it work. Well, you know, we were talking about this bone broth craze. Now that that's a thing and there's bone broth restaurants, I feel like maybe... It could be be the time. It could be the time in the next year to get breakfast on the menu again. I guess. I just just think bone broth needs to go away. It's called (laughs) stock, and people should just make their own. Like, What are you doing? Yeah, it is incredibly easy to make your own. Yeah. For sure. How has the food at the restaurants developed as your personal life has developed, you know, in your evolution? Are there things that you did at the beginning that you would never even imagine doing now and, and things you do now that you could have never imagined doing then? That's a good one. Um, I never would have imagined having a fried chicken restaurant, you know, 
I love Wilma Jean. Wilma Jean Did was you, my grandma. Was fried chicken something you grew up with? A little bit. Not yeah. like... Not like the craze that it is in New York and other parts. I mean, that goes back to the you know my suggestion of talking about stereotypes because fried chicken is like taking on a life of its own in New York and in other cities. And we had it. It was a big thing, like you know, for funerals and things like that because it was like it's it Easy travels well, grab, yeah. yeah, and it's like it's always kind of around. But it wasn't like. Beans, like beans in my family were like a big thing. My dad almost every Sunday would make like a pot of beans. And then my mom would make some cornbread and some fried potatoes. How do you, it, how do you make your beans? N- now or like how did my dad do it back then? Well, both. Let's... Um, now it's still pretty simple, man. I, you know, I like to have some stock in there, but not too much because it can be too sticky. Um, my go-to bean, if I... If I have them at the time and I'm feeling fancy, it's something from Rancho Gordo. Okay. Because I think they have the best beans in the country. Um, if it's like super quick style and I just, you know, want to cook a pot of beans the next day. Because I like to soak them, you know. And people say different things about whether you need to soak it or not. And that's for another show. Um, but it's either Pinto or Great Northern. My okay. dad's favorite bean was Great Northern. Um, but I put them in a pot. I usually use a bay leaf, some onion, some garlic, and some kind of pork product. My dad was big on hocks. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm into that as well. I like a smoked pork product. At, at a minimum, I think it's a little piece of country ham or salt pork or something like that. Um, and just let them go. Not too much. And then I like to have stuff around it. And one of the, another stereotype of, you know, that I think exists about Southern food, especially in the North, um, is this like, you know, eating hush puppies and burying your head in a bowl of grits. Like, it's not... <laughs> It's not really like not that. Not polity in Southern. No, it's not really. Those things exist, but it, it, it's you just don't get beaten over the head with it. And oftentimes in the, in the summer in particular when our my dad grew really good tomatoes um, and my mom has a cucumber pretty much at every meal, like on the table somewhere with a salt shaker nearby. Um, so we could very easily have like a pan of cornbread with some really good butter, the beans that my dad made, um, some greens with some bacon fat and vinegar on it. Um, sliced cucumber, sliced tomato that had never been refrigerated. And that's like dinner, and there's like no meat, and nobody cares. You know, my dad, sometimes he really like, you know, want a pork chop or something, but if you have all that stuff, and there's like a tiny little bit of pork in the in the beans, and it's like you bowl the beans and crumble some cornbread, and like, you know, we always had like um, vinegar with chilies in it to like bring some acid to the party, yeah. even in like, you know, 1982. Um, this is like a vegetarian meal, and you just don't even think. That's the best kind of vegetarian food. Like, you just, when you're not even thinking about it, you don't even care. It just happens organically. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right, I have two last questions here before we wrap oh up boy. the show. What is something that New Yorkers, or anyone really, don't know about what you do? About what I do? Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh man, I don't know how to answer that. Um, at the restaurants, like sure, however you want to interpret it, or um, we can. Move I think on. I th- no, <laughs> no, 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 no. I, it's nothing to hide. I'm trying to think. I think New Yorkers probably don't realize how much time I spend down south. I really like spending time down there and want to spend more time down there. Um, 
Like at home, or do you like to explore other parts of the South? Home, and I want to do a project down there, so I'm always looking for that. And um, Yeah, I spent a lot of time in Virginia because it's so close to New York, you know? Um, so that's one thing that people probably don't know. Yeah. yeah. The last question is similarly weird. What message do you wish you could tell every diner in the city? Be nice to your servers. <laughs> that's fair. Tip 20%. Yeah. Yeah. Most people are pretty good, though. Especially in Brooklyn. People are pretty cool in Brooklyn. Cool. No offense to Manhattan. Yeah. Well, Brooklyn's a spot to be these days. Queens, yeah. too, though. Queens has always That's had it going I'm hearing. On. I've been hearing that for a decade, though. That's what I'm hearing, though. I hear Jackson Heights. Who knows? Chef, thank you so much for the time is today. Is that it? It's over? That's it. We're, this is a wrap. Yeah. Wow. All right. I'll have to come back every week. I would love that. <laughs> I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. You guys are listening to Meant to Be Eaten. I'm your host, Andrea Ween. Tune in next week, Tuesdays 4, here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.